0: member of the iconic Destiny's Child supergroup, along with Beyonce Knowles and Kelly Rowland. On the surface, Michelle Williams lived this life that people dreamed of, and yet on the inside, things were not as they seemed. Living under the weight of depression and anxiety, Michelle hid the darkness that had been with her really since her teens, and the blend of pressure to perform and millions of eyes on her every move. It only deepened the level of suffering and the feeling that She kind of had to keep her experience silent. And when Destiny's Child came to an end, it caught her by surprise. She questioned her identity, her career, her worth, and no longer had the singular focus, the group, to distract her from addressing her mental health. And after years of navigating a range of professional projects, Michelle eventually found herself in the perfect storm of depression, anxiety, and anger that led her to seek help in a residential program. But that was just the first crashing wave. A tenuous relationship with her fiancé crumbled under the bright lights of a reality show that, as she shares, probably never should have happened. And she was devastated, felt abandoned, publicly judged, and inhabiting a world that really just felt like it no longer fit or supported her. Michelle had what she described as a psychotic break or a complete breakdown. And that moment and the suffering that led to it, it opened a window of profound reckoning of self-examination, inquiry, intense therapy, and eventually a renewed sense of faith and self and devotion that fueled her path slowly back to well-being, a journey she shared in her moving memoir, Checking In. And she's the first to share. There's still a lot of work left to do, but she's also very transparent about the moments along the way with the hope that her story might help others. We talk about it all in this wide ranging, vulnerable and open conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. You know, it's funny, you're recording music. I know some people prefer to be in sort of like a big city-based commercial studio and others want to vanish away to sort of like a studio that's in a barn mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere.
1: <laughs> some of my best work was done in Nashville in a log cabin with Tommy Sims. It was- No kidding. And in the, in the upper portion of his home, that was the best, you know, and the, the booth was in like a closet that was makeshift. So it was small and you felt just like safe. I like the insulated warmth of feeling like I'm in a cocoon, just I'm no one's looking at me. You know, it's not all these windows in the booth. So it's just I literally felt like I was singing in a closet.
0: Oh, that's amazing. It's almost like you're being swaddled while you sing.
1: That's the word <laughs> right? I'm looking for. Right? I could have said that five minutes ago. Swaddled <laughs> is the word I was looking for.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also. I mean, cause that kind of matches up with something that I know you've shared about yourself, which is that and it's probably counterintuitive for people who have seen you've lived a very public life, but you also really identify as being fairly introverted.
1: I do, Jonathan. I, and I love people, but I feel like I need to be recharged. And so I was reading up on introverts and how they have to like get to their safe place where to me, coming home, is my charging base, Mm. you know? Like even during the pandemic, I loved being home, but there are people close to me, there are two people close to me in particular, my my best friend, Amira, and Kelly, Kelly Rowland. They thrive on connection with people, and they're very high functioning, very, you know, and I'm like, lockdown, count me in. You know, but I had friends where they just thrive in the human connection and having to be around people. That's that. And so my heart went out to folks who are literally trying to climb off of their patio or their terraces to, you know, get some type of connection with the outdoor world during the lockdown.
0: Yeah, it's been so interesting to see how people have experienced it. We actually just had um, a conversation with a woman named Elaine Aaron, who's sort of like has been researching what she calls highly sensitive people for decades now, which is sort of like people who there's a, and there's a lot of overlap. It's, it's basically, you just, you're affected by a lot of stimulation, Um, but there's this really interesting thing that she shared with me, which was kind of counterintuitive, which is like you can be highly sensitive and kind of need to withdraw and love your own quiet space. And at the same time, she, you can be what she described as high sensation Meaning, like, you also like really intense experiences at the same time, which is a little counterintuitive.
1: Uh, <laughs> it depends. I think I'm more of the first, hmm. very highly sensitive. I can pick up so many different energies in a room. And if something is draining or concerning, I feel it. And it's like when I come home, I'm like, wow not that the people are bad it's just you don't never know what they're going through and so you know they they're bringing that energy to places but as far as I like concerts and stuff but it just kind of depends a lot of noise um a lot of roo ha I just
0: not your jam
1: no but is it because I'm getting old
0: No, I mean, but that's curious, right? Because (laughs) you're you're somebody who's lived around so much of that. So is it that you're getting older and more sensitive or is it just that you're sort of like, you're realizing that that sensitivity has always been there and maybe like getting more comfortable owning it?
1: Realizing that sensitivity has almost been there, but then how much of it is rooted in anxiety?
0: Yeah, right.
1: When I started my therapy process, especially with my newer therapist here in Atlanta since the end of 2018, We did uh, what, so you've heard Enneagram, right? Mm -hmm, Sure. Well, there's a Genogram, Geneagram, where you go through your mom and dad, their siblings, if they have any, your grandparents, and and you just kind of go by what their traits were, what their behaviors and responses are. And then you just, to try to get to the root to my own behavior. And so I began to tell her things and she was like, no wonder She said, you've lived in a state of anxiety for pretty much in those certain areas of childhood development. In that latter stage of childhood development, you've lived in a state of anxiety. And then your career is an anxiety-ridden career. Not Not that it's necessarily bad anxiety, but you're here and there. You gotta get on the plane. You gotta make it on stage. You gotta be on time. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. Hair, makeup, rehearsal. Don't say the wrong thing. Make sure you smile no matter if you're having a bad day. That's anxiety. So I've chosen an anxiety written career. <laughs> it's like it just
0: exacerbates sort of like piles on piles on piles
1: yeah, on. Yeah. 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 But is it
0: it's so interesting, right, when you can start to track that stuff back to you know, all the way back to when you were a kid. So I know you grew up in in a household that you described as, you know, it, it's a household and a community really steeped in faith. Yes. But at the same time, it was a household where you didn't really talk about deeper stuff that just wasn't part of the conversation, either outside the house or even inside the house or with parents.
1: It wasn't. And I just learned the other day, I'm so glad we're having this conversation, Jonathan, because I was reading up on the term passive aggressive. Hmm because there was some behavior that a friend of mine was exhibiting. And I was like, that's passive-aggressive. So I'm looking up what (laughs) passive-aggressive means, and I had to slap my own self because I was reading me. And it was saying how some passive-aggressiveness comes from when you weren't able to express yourself as a child when you weren't able to express your emotions, your feelings, or even just your side of the story. So when it's time for you to express it now, you do it in a form of pouting, sarcastic remarks, giving the silent treatment. And I was like, I'm finna tell somebody else, you're exhibiting passive aggressive behavior. (laughs) And so when you talk about coming from a family of sweeping everything under the rug, and then learning that my emotional development or being able to respond was, was kind of stumped in my childhood because I grew up in a household of, if you are expressive, then you're talking back. Mm. It's like, no, no. I was a very expressive child, but it wasn't because I was being disrespectful. It's because I was naturally curious. Not that I wanted to be, be be rebellious or it could be something my mother had a habit of, and we crack up about it. She had a habit of like, now there's a house of, you got three kids, two adults. Then my little sister came. So about six people in the house total, one hairbrush between six people. <laughs> so naturally the hairbrush is going to be in all kinds of different places. And she would always blame us for the hairbrush missing. And not that i'm talking back but i would genuinely say it in a respectful way or casually just be like mom but the last time i saw someone with the brush someone with the brush you had it so you probably want to trace your don't you talk back i'm like... so i'm shut down just by even honestly saying you had the brush last
0: yeah. So, I mean, if, if you're shut down with that, then when you get to the stuff that like is really important, it's like shut not down. even Right. You just learn to bury it.
1: You, yeah. And so um, but I imagine that that's what she grew up with. She had eight siblings, you know, and to my understanding, they were kind of in a very strict household. My mom couldn't go to prom because you couldn't be dancing on the dance floor. My dad had to take somebody else to the prom. He couldn't take my mom to the prom. They couldn't go to the movies because it was too worldly. And she didn't go to her first movie till she was like 18, 20 years old, I think when she was married. So imagine the strictness of her upbringing. But she let she loosened up on us. She said that we could go to homecoming in the prom, but we couldn't be on the dance floor. And then I end up in a dance group.
0: <laughs> it's like the ultimate act of rebellion. <laughs> yeah, but it's so interesting also because what you, the way you're describing it is sort of like, okay, so this is the way I grew up and I realized like mm-hmm. you're still processing stuff from there. Still. But like when you talk about your parents, you don't talk about them with a sense of of like malice. It's sort of like, you know, you, and I'm wondering whether... Like when that came, because my guess is as a kid, like you don't understand your parents and what shaped them and made them the way they mm-hmm. are. But it sounds like you've really thought about, okay, so like my mom is this way, not because she's a bad person, but because she came up in a way and in a yeah. time of expectations that sort of like led her to to like move into the world this way.
1: You know, I echo the sentiments of Sean Jay-Z Carter. And he said, once once he started going to therapy, that's when he got compassion for his parents mm. and that's kind of because when you talk about your parents and their parents and their then you're like it wasn't their fault either you know but now through therapy i have the chance for some of that dysfunctional behavior to stop with me just because we survive abuse survive certain unhealthy responses doesn't make it normal. We have to call it dysfunction. But just because we survived it, we think we're okay. And it's like, no, you survived dysfunction. That's what it was. It was dysfunction. And so, but I had to take a look and say, okay, well, my parents' parents, they just come from a generation where um, there wasn't a lot of affection shown survival was shown. We, we trying to keep this roof over your head, clothes on your back, shoes on your feet. And you talking about you need a hug. That literally, that's how it was growing up. Now then in some families, like say my ex-fiance's family, total affectionate people. Hmm. Even men hugging each other, sitting close with one another, putting their heads in each other's chest like man I love you man I didn't see that in my household at all or or nor did I see like my aunts and uncles show affection to each other with a kiss but you know they're doing something because you've got children
0: <laughs> there's evidence <laughs> there's
1: evidence that some hanky panking is going on like I didn't I didn't see my parents. Show affection.
0: Yeah, and if that's the model of the world that you grow up in, then like you said, if it's at some point, you know, there's got to be a a cost to that, you know.
1: And I'm not saying people have to be making out full French, because I'm not saying that. <laughs> right, but you right. want to know, Do y'all like each other?
0: Yeah, and also <laughs> just like an environment where you can sort of like express what's on your mind and who you are and be open. Um, yes, sir. I know you've talked about it, you know, like plenty and, and, we'll, and we'll talk about it more that um, you've already shared like anxiety was something that you were aware of pretty early and also depression, even as early as your teens. And do, do you feel, I know depression is a really funky thing because people are always trying to figure out why it's there and trace it back. But sometimes it's just, there are a lot of things that contribute to it. I'm I'm curious, you know, when you think back to your teens, How did these things show up in sort of like a Mm day-to-day
1: way? Um, Now, I knew something was going on in the seventh grade, but I didn't get an official diagnosis until I was in my thirties. But back in the seventh grade, I didn't have language for it. I didn't have vocabulary. I don't even know if I knew the word depression. I knew lunch money. (laughs) I knew first period, second period, third period choir rehearsal, I knew, but I didn't. I knew of pneumonia and uh cancer, but the word depression, I, I just I don't even know if that was in my word bank in the seventh grade. But I just attributed to I was like, well maybe it's hormone or I am going from girl to woman. Or maybe this is just what being a teenager is like. You're moody. You don't want to be around people. You're isolated. You're tired all the time. Um just Losing interest, my grades started dropping and I was like, am I going to be one of those kids that was straight A's all the way up until seventh grade? My grades started dropping, but thank God that I had a mentor and people who saw um, something special in me at that time who, um, you know, were endeared to me and helped me through that period of time in the seventh grade.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when we find people who kind of like are living busy lives and yet they see something in you that sometimes you don't even see in yourself or understand and just step in, in a caring way without judgment.
1: In a caring way. And one was a teacher, her name is Karen Portis. She ended up mm. joining my church later on. And a man by the name of Mr. Gilbert, Skip Gilbert, I believe was his name. He was part of the company called Big Brothers Big Sisters. And I don't know if he was a full-time employee of my school or if he would just come as a representative of Big Brothers Big Sisters. And um, he would just sit with me from time to time. And he was just a safe place, a safe person. And I didn't have to tell them what was going on at home, just a person that I could just, and it just boosted my morale. And I survived middle school
0: <laughs> mm.
1: because of these two people.
0: Yeah, it's I, I love when people like that touch down. Um, So this kind of becomes you survive, but at the same time, this is just like a part of your regular experience, you know, like which persists to this day to a certain extent. You end up coming out of high school starting in college with an interest in criminal justice. So you're like, I mean, music was always a part of your life. Singing was always yeah, a part like of your life. Yeah,
1: like raised in church. Always, right? All of that, all of it. Right,
0: but but something inside of you is like, okay, that's the thing I do on the side, or that's the thing I do for God, but this is not my career. You know, yes, not, exactly. And criminal justice is the thing that, that seems to be your career. So you're in college, you're studying, and then a couple years in, Everything Changes. <laughs>
1: Everything Changes in 1999, a friend of mine calls me and says, um, I found your number in the bottom of a moving box. I was just calling to see if you had the same number. And I was like, yeah, what's going on? He said, like, yeah, I'm about to go on the road with Monica. She's um, opening up for the band 98 Degrees. Do you remember that band, China?" I do.
0: They were they were huge back yeah. then.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so they were going on a tour that was sponsored by Nickelodeon. And um, I said, really? So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, if Monica needs a background singer, tell her to call me. You know, like she knows me. And he calls me like a week or two later and says, she's having auditions tomorrow. Can you get to Atlanta? And I was like, I can't afford a next day plane ticket. He said, hold the line. He calls his co- cousin Gladys, who worked for United Airlines. She got me a buddy pass I get to Atlanta and I do the audition and I get that gig to sing background for Monica. And thank God it was during the summer months because the plan was, I promised my mom, the plan was to do this tour and enroll, get your tail right back in school. That was the plan. Didn't quite stick to the plan. Um, And then I got a phone call that Destiny's Child was interested in um, looking for alternate members. I wasn't even supposed to be permanent, an alternate member of the group. And um, life changed for me at the end of 1999 and then top of 2000. I get a phone call saying, hey, we need you to come to L.A. to film the video for Say My Name. And I was like, wait a minute, but I'm supposed to shadow the county coroner for an autopsy. I can't go film a video. So I was at a crossroads. Do you shadow the county coroner because you're, you, you're wanting to really go into forensic psychology. So my uncle, who was a physician, obviously knew the county coroner and hooked up a day for me to shadow her. And I had to make a choice, autopsy or say my name, video. And I chose the video. So the friend who recommended me that job for Monica, the audition, he tragically passed away about two months ago in a Mm -hmm. motorcycle accident. And I just thank God for him. I thank God for that phone call. You know, he was used as a vessel in my life changing.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com goodlife. That's netsuite.com goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com goodlife. I'm so fascinated by the concept of sliding doors. I mean, do you ever sit there and wonder like, What if he didn't find that like piece of paper or whatever it is, like Like, what would my life be like today?
1: I, I'll say this, even though I was going through what I was the depression in the seventh and eighth grade, I knew that I would be successful. Hmm. I had too many great people that I could touch. My uncle was a doctor. One of my mentors worked for the FAA. So I knew that it was possible. So, I knew that I would be successful. I didn't know to the point of like Googleable, you know? So, I knew, I said, well, maybe I, I and so in college when I was like, you know, I want to be a forensic psychologist, I knew that I would be good or a prosecuting attorney. I knew that I would do something. I didn't have a choice really, but to pursue something great. Yeah. But to this capacity, no. Never thought, never thought that I could impact millions of people. Unless I became some top prosecuting attorney, unless I became some top forensic psychologist that has to speak at like high profile cases, get deposed, you know, on a high Mm. profile case, and then I have to take the stand. And then that that's how you know people's names.
0: Yeah. So when you choose Destiny's Child over Criminal Justice. What's that conversation like with your parents? (laughs) Oh, bribery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I told my mom, I said, Mom, because at the time, she loved the Chrysler 300M. Now it's just called the Chrysler 300. I said, Mom, let me do one more background singing gig. I'm going to get you that Chrysler
0: 300M. So she's like, "All right, just one more."
1: It was bribery. <laughs> then it turned in, and then not only well, she got an kind of Cadillac like escalated, she got a house. So it was double. She got she got more than she could ask or think or <laughs> you know. And so that's too funny. I was able to do that, you know, for her.
0: Yeah, I mean, the you're also coming into Destiny's Child, right? This is not when you're when you come into it. It's not a new group. So this is a group that was formed. They were out there. And you're coming in, you're coming in at a bit of an awkward time, too.
1: <laughs> Total, totally awkward, Jonathan. An already established group. You know, I felt like I was coming into somebody's house and a furnished house. Pictures are where they're gonna be. Carpet is where it's gonna be. Don't come in changing nothing, just come on in. <laughs> And that's what it was for me, but it was fun. It was fun.
0: Yeah. And you guys, you, you kind of hit the ground running. I mean, the, the, like the group, it feels like it from the outside looking in, it gels pretty quickly. You know, you're out there on the road doing incredible things. Um, and wild, wild successes. Um, your profile personally is raising dramatically. And at the same time, there's this interesting decision that you and the band kind of make together when you decide to sort of publicly become a part of the band, which is to change your name. Well, not so much to change your name, but to drop your first name and go with your second name.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was an interesting meeting. I was like, well, am I going to like ruin my chances to be in a group because of this request? Then I thought of people, I was like, okay, well, Rosanda is Chili's real name in TLC. You know, Kelly's real name is Calendria. So I was like, okay, I guess, you know, we'll go for it. Now, the reasoning stung. Like, who do you think little girls would want to be most like, Tanitra or Michelle? And I've since talked to this person, and they're doing well in their life and marketing and all that stuff. because there's marketing, I get it. But I was like, when I fast forward to 2021, mm. my mayor's name is Keisha. Okay, you have we have a vice president Kamala. You know, I wonder now would that request have been made in in 2021? But I get it. I get why at that time, I think it was the best way to do what we had to do to cross over from R& b to pop. You know, and I get it. And guess what? We had a fabulous run. and my family, I felt it was cool because not that I was portraying a different person to the world, you were still getting to Nitra. But my I feel like when I would go home to family, it was soothing when they'd say T or Tanitra. It was nah. soothing when my mom would say Tanitra Michelle. That's how she, if I was in trouble, that I'd get Tanitra Michelle. Or if she needed me to go get cornbread mixed from the grocery store, T, can you go get some cornbread? Or oh, don't forget you have to pick up your nieces from daycare today, you know? So I loved having that kind of boundary mm. to the world and who I am to my family.
0: Yeah. But at at the same time it also sounds like there was a certain weightiness to it. There was a certain sort of like hiding aspect that almost that almost felt like you questioning authenticity in a weird way. That that kind of, you know, and if you have a history of depression and of stifling, you grow up in a household where sort of like things are yeah. stifled. It's sort of like it becomes this interesting, you know, kind of trigger.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, it was just something you sweep under the rug. I didn't question it because I said, these are professionals here. They know what's best. So I didn't question it. I didn't say, well, why would you think people wouldn't want to be like Tanitra? I I didn't. At the time, I'm young. I'm by myself. You know, my mom was unhappy at first. You know, her actually, she was hurt when I told her. She was like, I named you. And I was like, yes, ma'am. I know you did. I know. (laughs) Um, I named you that. I named you after me. To this day I, I don't see the correlation between Anita and Tanitra. I, I, I think the syllables, yes, there's three syllables. I think it was the epidural. Cause I don't I, I don't know how Anita and Tanitra how I'm a junior <laughs> somehow. But yeah, she was she was hurt. But there are certain things you're like, am I gonna let this be a deal breaker? No.
0: Yeah. So you just kind of move on and you're out there as Michelle and the band is doing, the group is doing incredible things. And it, it's interesting, right? Because from the outside looking in, you're on top of the world. You have every reason. You know, I think the assumption is, you know, she's doing incredible work. She's affecting the lives of millions of people, earning like a nice living. She's got millions of eyes on her. And all of that is true. And at the same time, the depression and the anxiety, they never left you. They're just sort of like, they're always there, like just underneath the surface, which in a way, I wonder if that actually made it harder for you because if you try and share that, people, instead of saying, well, well tell me about that, it becomes almost harder to understand because from the outside looking in, it seems like, well, well you couldn't possibly have a reason to have these feelings, mm-hmm. like something yeah. can't be right there. Like
1: Yeah, and it seemed like I was talking to more people who... Didn't understand depression because one of the comments, even in my the first or second year while I was in Destiny's Child, I did go to somebody and say, hey, I think this is depression. And they're like, no, same thing. You guys just went out going on tour. You got Barbie dolls. No, you got so much going for you. And I've even talked to that person since then. And he said that had he known then what he knows now about depression, his response would have been totally different. Versus, but I get it. You're trying to make somebody feel better. You're trying to make them see the brighter side of things. I get it. I wasn't even mad when he said it. And then I was like, you're right. Maybe I am homesick. Maybe I'm just fatigued and tired. Which I was. (laughs) I was. I was homesick. I loved my hometown of Rockford, Illinois. I was definitely homesick. So once again, I just went on and just didn't have it treated until maybe 10 years later, actually. Mm. So that's a long time.
0: That is a long time. I mean, you wrote in in your recent memoir, there was this line that really stayed with me. You wrote, some days I feel like I'm feeling all the emotions God has all at once. Other days, I feel like I'm just dead inside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're feeling numb, how you feeling numb. If you're numb, you don't feel nothing, but (laughs) you're numb or like you say, you're feeling overwhelmed. I don't know if it was necessarily sadness versus empty, hopeless, finished. What more can I accomplish? I was watching The Weight of Gold uh, the documentary by Michael Phelps and how you you feel depleted and finished because you feel like the rah, 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 rah is what gives you validation versus we need to be seeking who we are outside of the training, outside of the Olympic winner, outside of the Grammy winner, seeing who you are outside of that, building that person up and then all those other things are just great additions to who you are, but it's not the main portion of who you are. Although you train like hell to accomplish that. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I get it. But um, I felt that way about my book. You know, I had to check in with myself because, you know, the week, the, the release of my book, it was full. And you're feeling good about yourself. You're feeling Like you're contributing something great to society. And then it's like, all right, what's next? And it's like, do I want to live my life? All right. Actually, I don't. So I've learned to check in with myself and say, "Uh, it's a little much better now. I love now I'm doing maybe one interview a day or two interviews a day versus that three page long itinerary of one day of press. So I, I love it being spaced out. So now when I check in with myself, it's a feeling of gratitude. Mm. I'm still thankful a month later to still be talking about my book. And then I instantly say, yeah, you're still you're still doing good. You're good. It's just not as intense. Your schedule's just not intense. That doesn't mean you're a bum. <laughs> You know. Yeah,
0: because I think sometimes we, w- when you, when you get used to, it's almost like you habituate to a level of incredible intensity, and there, there's a reason to wake up in the morning every single day. When you're in Destiny's Child and you're on tour, you are working like crazy. I mean, all you all had the reputation in the industry as as working harder than anyone, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're you're there's a like there are a thousand reasons to get up every morning, and you know where you're going. And it's interesting that you brought up that documentary, The Weight of Gold, because that was one of my curiosities. You know, when Destiny's Child finally sort of like comes to its its natural end as a full-time thing, you know, Michael Phelps, a lot of Olympians, a lot of pro athletes write about this. It's like, it's like okay, so you've been at the highest high. You've had this intense sense of, I know what I'm doing every day when I get up in the mm-hmm. morning. Like I know what I have to do and I have a sense of purpose. I know what I'm working towards. And then for you, when that kind of goes away. And it sounds like it caught you by surprise a little bit.
1: It did. And you wake up
0: the next morning. (laughs) I know a lot of Olympians say, even when they've won the gold, they wake up the next morning and there's this really deep sense of loss and depression. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how, what was that season sort of like right after for you?
1: Is it, I mean, it is a, uh, um, when you're on a roller coaster and you're going up the hill and you're like, oh my gosh, it's incredible. And then you go the shoo and you're like, Oh my God. And then when you're like coming into the end of the roller coaster on that boring track and you're like, womp, womp. <laughs> I did all that for this. <laughs> did I really risk a heart attack, palpitations, blacking out because of a G force <laughs> for this boring ending? <laughs> And it felt like a boring ending. Like, what? Did I really not shadow the county coroner for this? You know, but it, you know, I felt like we were supposed to go on forever. You know, that's just not what it is. But I'm so glad. I, I just think of moments almost 15 years later, 16 years since the Official, the last official release of a Destiny's Child album that I still do what I do today.
0: Mm.
1: That's so it that gets me up out of that wonder. Like, I wonder what could have been versus what's going on now. We are all still doing our thing, you know, and and everyone's enjoying their time down and apart you know Beyonce and Kelly they have children so they're enjoying that and it's kind of like being able to choose when you're going to get back to that level of intensity and now when you kind of have the lower moments you don't you don't let it become a depressive moment you let it become a moment of recharging thinking about what to do next you're okay you know being able to breathe and now pick and choose what you want to do. That's actually a great position to be in. Mm.
0: 15, 16 years later, it feels like you're in this really good place. But during those 15 or 16 years, there's a lot of roller coasters. A lot of roller coasters,
1: a lot of uncertainty, a lot of what am I going to do? Are people going to expect me to perform at the intensity? Because I feel like during performances, I was like, oh my gosh, do I have to have pyro? Do I have to have a wind machine? Do I have to have sequence and hair and makeup? And what, what, what are people expecting? And I worried about that because I didn't, people feel like I fell off if I'm doing a performance now and it's to a track versus the band versus the whole machine, you know, and I, it, it affected me for a while. Like, what am I going to do? Because Michelle Williams' budget was different from my Destiny's Child budget. Yeah, And I ended up putting a lot of my own personal money into certain performances to have at least a band to keep up with a certain expectation.
0: Yeah. And it's also, you know, there, there's got to be this season, I would imagine, where you're questioning on a fundamental level, who am I? Like, if, if I'm not, okay, so I thought for a while I was going to be the criminal justice person, and make a big mark there turns out I entered the world of music and made a big mark there. But as a part of this, a a big part of the identity is tied up in this group. Mm -hmm. And then it's like when that ends, and you're still pretty young at that point, right? So Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's this moment where even beyond all this, on a deeper level, you're, you're questioning your identity. Like who am I actually without all of this?
1: Without all of this, I mean, every other week I was looking at online schools. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm going to go back to school. Maybe I, maybe I, this is my chance. I can do both. I can do it all, you know? Um, And it's amazing to, you know, with athletes, who are they without the football in their hand? And that's why a lot of athletes even have trouble transitioning from the NFL field, the NBA court, the baseball field, without those certain things in their hand that made them these great, athletes, right? And you have to know that without that, the greatest medicine for those thoughts and wondering who you are is having people around you who love you for you, who will still pick up the phone if you don't have tickets to offer them. People who still just want to come by and visit and sit with you because they just love who you are as a person. So once you have that Then you'll know I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, you know, I'm a person that's still choosing to make impact. Now I'm just making impact in a different way. But I think what helps me is knowing that I literally have people who will come sit with me or invite me places just because they're like, I know you love pizza, girl, I'm finna go make a pizza run. You want to come with me? Yeah. Safe people. Mm.
0: Yeah. You got to have those, you know, especially when you're going through a window like that, where you're sort of questioning Mm -hmm. everything.
1: Absolutely. And then making sure you're also having people that are giving you time to breathe, but saying, hey, I want to coach you into your next. What are you passionate about? Even while you were on the football field or on that stage performing, what were you passionate about then? And you can still do it. If it's going back to school, go for it. I love seeing people. I have a, a good friend of mine who was a um, is defensive end. And defensive back the same thing.
0: Um, I'm so not a football person. Okay. You're asking like one of the one of the guys. You're like, uh, I think so. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> totally different.
1: <laughs> he played for the Chicago Bears. Uh huh. And he was the highest paid in that position at one time. And now for the past two years, he's been working as the head of sports and entertainment at UBS, you know, a top private wealth management entity. He's trans he's, he's made a great transition, but was it still difficult? Yeah. But I'm loving that he's passionate. He's always been frugal. So he's always been passionate about people saving their money. And now Look, he's in a position that's helping people manage their wealth. I so I look to him like it's so, so, so incredible. I I watch people's transitions very, very closely, just as well as people are watching mine.
0: Yeah, it's it's gotta be powerful to have people like that in your life where you can kind of look and see how they've navigated and also see that it's it's possible. You know, you can take the way that you defined yourself in one part of mm-hmm. your life.
1: And don't let people make you feel that because your name's not being called or people, 50,000 people aren't cheering for you at the same time, that that doesn't make you feel that you don't have value. I'm not going to let the applause of people determine what my value is in the world. Yeah. And my purpose.
0: And that's a huge shift. Um, and, and I know at the same time, through that, you know, this whole last season, you know, you've stepped onto the stage a lot more, but like in in an acting and like musical context, you have, like you've stayed in the business of performing. Mm -hmm. Um, You've Mm -hmm. done it really differently. And at the same time, that same through line, the the underbelly of depression and anxiety, it never went away. In fact, during parts of it, when you're sort of like in, in a darker window, it got deeper and darker. And, you know, eventually leading to this moment in 2018, where it's sort of like it was the perfect storm.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah. It was um at times beautiful, I mean. I got engaged, I'm performing at Coachella with Beyoncé and Kelly and you know, I got a Broadway opportunity that came my way. It literally was the won. That was the ending. I wasn't used to those endings. Except the one when Destiny Child ended, but it's things picked up again. But I was just like, what in the world is going on? I will never forget 2018. Well, there are certain years that people have in their lives where they're like, girl, you remember 1972? Well, I'm going to be, girl, do you remember 2018? I sure do and never want to go back to it. I learned from it, but... That was an interesting time, the highs and lows And in 2018, I'll I'll never forget. I think that depression kind of started around either the end of 2017 or January 2018, and it wasn't until July 2018 where it was like, okay, and I kept it to myself. I didn't say anything to anybody, because I had been talking about depression publicly since 2013. And I didn't want people to be like, oh, my gosh, here we go again. So I didn't say anything until 2018. when At that point, though I was forced to say something because TMZ found out. And I was like, well, I'm not going to let them do the headline. They did anyway. But I was like, let me go ahead and, and admit that, yes, I did check into a treatment facility. And I'll be the guinea pig for people who... You know, are scared to get help that need to get help, and at that point, though, I was desperate enough to where I didn't care who knew that I was there, but I still thought. To this day, I don't know who told it. I wonder. You think they'll tell me? You think TMC will tell me if I ask? Like, I won't say anything. Who told? Who who? Who told you?
0: I'm guessing pretty slim chance there, but I mean, so so you you end up in a, in a residential program where you're like, okay, so. I'm kind mm-hmm. of at rock bottom emotionally at least. And it's time to to do something. I know you describe that as sort of like almost this otherworldly moment where you don't pack anything. You don't you literally just get in your car and show I up. I got at this in my place. car
1: and showed up.
0: Right. And when you emerge from that, you know, you emerge back into a really weird circumstance also because you've got a person who's in your life now. You you've signed a deal to do a reality show mm-hmm. about a relationship. And at that moment in time, it's sort of like the inner voice is saying, "The last thing that I need on the planet right now is to be have you know, like a camera crew trailing you know, like us mm-hmm. around 24/7. I just need to mm-hmm. be private and heal." And yet there are all these expectations coming at you from the outside.
1: Expectation, yeah, it was expectations, lies, greed, probably to even exploit the moment. And I learned, I learned, oh, I learned my lesson to not ever go against what my gut says because my gut said, do not do it. My gut said, don't do it. And then uh, my fiance was told that we would be in breach of contract if we don't do it. And I didn't seek to hit my attorney about it because it sounded Legit, like, well, we did sign up to do it. So, And then there was the, Michelle, you could really make a difference in people's lives by talking about the depression. And so I was like, is that something I'm willing to do? I am transparent. I'm an open person. So I guess it would be cool to let people see the journey because I plan on coming out triumphant. That did not happen. So I would say to anybody trust that gut feeling, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, trust it. Cause it would have saved a lot. It was, it would have saved a lot of heartache and then further embarrassment and humiliation. Like when is she going to learn? You know, the Oprah Winfrey network was very supportive and really wanted me to not work at all, but I got contrary information. So I shot the show and I'm not blaming the show, but it was to me the worst decision that I've made in my career ever. I'm a stick by that statement.
0: Yeah, I mean that that lands you in a really short time back in an even darker place. Mhm. Which you which you've described as I don't know whether remember whether you used the phrase nervous breakdown or psychotic break, but basically yeah. You, you reached a state where-
1: in, yeah, in December of 2018, because I go f- July when I got out of the hospital, which I ch- was able to get checked out earlier from the hospital because I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to have a peaceful time there. I would have stayed longer. Our camera's gonna, if people- The nurse came in and told me to close my curtains because she was afraid of long lens camera people, photographers- finding me. So I was like, you know, I got to get out of here. So I'll just do the my care outpatient. I'll just finish it, the rest of my care. But I didn't, I should have taken time to heal from at least July to, I think November, I could have had some good time because November is December is when I was supposed to star in, the broad, in a Broadway show. So I think that would have been enough time to heal from that hospitalization but I go from hospitalization to a camera in my face to my relationship being rocky, stressed. We didn't stand a chance. We didn't give ourselves a chance. So even if there's somebody out there now, you're in a broken situation, don't talk to a lot of people about it. Just you and that person, figure it out. Even if you decide you don't wanna go further, whether it's through that job or that relationship, just you guys process it out with trusted care, a trusted therapist, a trusted counselor, and figure it out. If it don't work out, at least just the two of y'all could make that decision without the whole world being abreast of what was going on.
0: Yeah. I know it's, it's really interesting following along with with um, the way you describe it and the way you write about it. Um, one of the things that really stood out was you have two go-tos. Like when you're when you know you're in a dark place when you just need you need to process things, therapy and faith, and it's interesting to me because oftentimes those two things don't play well together. They, I had conversation with so many folks who were raised in a devout faith community and and across almost literally every spiritual tradition, and there's sometimes this sort of like raised eyebrow that if you can't find your answers here, if you need to actually go to therapy or take meds, that it is a spiritual failure and a human failure and that that's not okay. And there's a certain amount of shame that keeps you from mm-hmm. that. So it's, re- it's really interesting to me to see that you are like, no, this is a yes and thing. Yes, I'm deeply devout. You're like, yes, God means a lot to me. Yes, I'm checking in with God, but I'm also checking in with therapy and other processes mm-hmm. and if i need medication i need medication and this is the type of thing where so i'm really i'm interested in the, the idea of you being open to everything
1: yeah because the majority of people are yes and OBGYN, yes and family practice physician yes and an oncologist my thing is yes and a therapist yes and a psychiatrist <laughs> Yes, and that and prayer, all of that. Yes, and so I don't judge anybody for saying, you know, yes, and insulin. (laughs) Yes, and high blood pressure medication. Yes, and an antidepressant. Yes, and anti-anxiety until you can, hopefully, hopefully certain things don't even have to be lifelong. I don't know, but until... A person is stable until maybe things can be regulated by diet and exercise. It's going to be yes and.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I th- I thought it was it, it was really interesting to sort of like see your openness to saying okay, like I, it, basically whatever's going to help me right now, I'm all in.
1: Yeah, Dr. Anita Phillips, who is an amazing uh, therapist and a profound minister, Bishop T.D. Jakes, really touts her and has her on his platform a lot. She's also on his daughter's um, podcast network and she's a therapist and she has a slogan that says prayer is a weapon. Therapy is a strategy. Mm. She has it on a t-shirt. I've been there, done that. And I literally bought the t-shirt from her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You got to support in every way, right?
1: Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Been there, done that, got a t-shirt.
0: Nah. And I mean, you're starting to come full circle in our conversation. It sounds like a big part of your recent coming full circle in just your understanding of yourself, your life, and like, how do you move forward in a place of greater ease? That forgiveness has been a really big part of your journey as well. And not just others, but also like self-forgiveness, like, Mm -hmm. like uh, and, and, Um, It's something that you write about and you speak about in a really powerful way.
1: You know what? It has just been, you know, a phenomenal, interesting journey. That's for sure. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So it feels like a good place for us to to bring this home. So hanging out here in this uh, container of Good Life Project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
1: To live a good life. Authenticity, kindness, you can have a good life. Authenticity because the people who are to be your tribe will be attracted to your authenticity and kindness goes a long way. People will give to you and your projects because of just, you know what, he's so kind. Jonathan, I'll come on your podcast all the time just because of your kindness and the handling you know, of this interview. Like, I can tell he's a kind person. Like, good life project. Good life project also means, but they say, don't cheat yourself, treat yourself. Mm. Like, I used to to not do things like go on a vacation because I felt like I hadn't accomplished what I needed to accomplish. I didn't reach a goal. But a good life is not breaking the bank, but just making sure that Hey, yes, you've been saving up all month. Go grab a coffee, an ice cream sandwich. Enjoy life. You have one life. I read something the other day that helped me because people feel self-care is selfish. No, it is not selfish. A good life is also taking care of the one life you have, you know, because you're not going to have another one. Mm.
0: Yeah, I hear that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you
0: hey before you leave if you love this conversation safe bet you will also love the conversation we had with grammy winning singer lisa fisher about her life in music and the effect that proximity to mega stardom has had on her beyond her own personal taste of fame You'll find a link to Lisa's episode in the show notes. Even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download it so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.